All right. I didn't know who would be here for the first hour or not here. So I had debated what to do. But if I tried the other thing, then all the people coming in for the second hour would have missed the first hour. So then the second hour turns into 30 minutes of review of the first hour. Oh, that that's always difficult. So what we're going to do for the first hour is we're going back to our discussion on law and gospels. Anybody remember what thesis we're on? Yes, we're on thesis number seven. Thesis number seven. And to, to let's just read the thesis and then we'll try to see how far. See if we, I don't know if we can, can finish the thesis, but we will see. All right. And if we can finish this, then I don't know. If we, if we decide to go on the next hour, what I may do, if we can get to the next thesis and we decide to pursue law and gospel in the next hour and not do the other thing, then I'll just start the next thesis and not review the previous one then. That um, if we can now, if we're at, it's always hard when you're right in the middle of a, of a thesis, and then everyone comes in the next hour. Then you're like, "Well, we're right in the middle of this thesis." So then you have to kind of get everyone caught up. But here we go. Thesis number seven. In the third place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first, and then the law, sanctification first, and then justification, faith first. Then repentance, good works first, and then grace. So a wrong division of the word of God occurs when the various doctrines are not presented in their correct order. There's an order to this. When something that should come last is placed first, then we have messed up everything. And this kind of goes, this is not only a proper understanding of law and gospel, this is not only a proper trying to keep them distinct, this is a desire and an attempt to keep them in the correct order. All right? So we have to keep them separate, we have to keep them distinct, and we have to ensure they're in the correct order. Now, we have not articulated that up to this point specifically, but we have definitely talked about it over and over and over. So we, we want, when it comes to law and gospel, right? Let's go through this. We need a correct understanding of the two. Yes? We must keep them separate, right? We must keep them distinct, right? So, and when I say distinct, it's not distinct in what they are. We, we got, we got to make sure we don't describe one like the other. For example, I don't know if you've been, if you listen to the podcast and we were reviewing the podcast from the Gospel Coalition, where they made the claim that law is a means of grace. Law is a means of grace. Well, I, that everyone should go, wait, what? How can law become a means of grace? Now, that's part of the Gospel Coalition teaching that law is a means of grace. You, I, I'm telling you, this is a massive problem in the evangelical world. So we need a proper understanding. We've got to keep them separate. We've got to keep them distinct. right? And what else do we have to do? Keep them in the correct order. We have to keep them in the correct order. Okay, does that make sense? I want to make sure we understand that, all right? So that, because... Because we're working through this, and there's obviously certain goals we're trying to accomplish, and we got to make sure we, we do all of that. All right, so then this, the book, again, God's No and God's Yes, gives us the four types of wrong sequences. Or how does the book describe them? Perverse sequences, all right? There, there, there are four types of perverse sequences that are possible. In the first place, the order may be dis- basically messed up 
If you preach the gospel prior to the law, if you preach the gospel prior to the law, and we looked at two passages of scripture, Mark 1.15 and Acts 20.21. Everybody remember that? And everybody understand what happens if we preach uh, the gospel prior to the law? Right. The gospel becomes a solution to things it was never designed to be a solution for. So Jesus is preached to fix your emotional problems. He becomes a solution to all kinds of issues that a lot of people then will believe in Jesus, thinking he's going to fix all of those issues. And guess what happens? He doesn't fix that issue. All right? I mean, it's, I've talked about this all week in the podcast in different ways. Remember, and in fact, on Christmas Day, people are supposed to be gathering today to remember that Jesus, he was called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Some people, and this is, this is very true, this is very true, and I, I know what I'm getting ready to say is going to sound heretical, but I really want you to think about this, and, and, and I know this is going backwards a little bit, but we really need to get this down. Okay, we have to get this down. Within the Christian world, it is very, 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 very common to present Jesus not necessarily as a savior from your sin in this way, that you're guilty, you're condemned, and he's going to save you by forgiving your sins and giving you imputed righteousness. But it's typically preached that Jesus is there to save you from your sins in this way. He's going to, he's going to change you so much that that sin is never a problem again. So I'll give you an example. Someone who suffers from same, who has the sin of same-sex attraction or, or can only have a, a, attraction for people of the same sex. Christianity will present the gospel as what? A solution to that and that once you get saved, the same-sex attraction magically disappears. Now, if I say that that doesn't happen, immediately people are like, how dare you say that? But I... I, just logically, I can prove that it doesn't happen. You know why? Because heterosexuals get saved. Does all of their attractions and desires become magically correct? No. Still lust, right? Isn't it weird how it can work that you can be in a church, you can have two teenagers on this side, they have same-sex attraction. And the church will say, if you get saved, it'll magically go away. And then you want to marry someone from the opposite sex and you'll live happily ever after in a house with a white picket fence, two dogs and three kids. And everyone will be happy. Right? Isn't that the way the church presents it? Over on this side, you have a boy and a girl, two teenagers who get saved. Does there, all of a sudden, does their sexual attraction for the, go away? And all of a sudden now, they're just filled with... Pure thoughts? No. They stru- so if they can struggle with sinful desire, they're going to struggle with sinful desire. That's the way it works. Right? If you have an unsubmissive attitude, do you get saved and magically become submissive? No. If you have a rebellious attitude, you become saved and magically it goes away? No. Typically, whatever deep issues you struggle with persist. Because Jesus did not come to save us from our sins in the sense of now making us able to just do everything. He saved us from our sins in which way? By saving us from the condemnation and the guilt and imputing righteousness to us. Now, positionally, I don't struggle with anything. Right? Positionally, I'm a new creature. 
But see, the church has sold the gospel as being what? That Jesus came to make you a new creature what way? Practically, so all that other stuff goes away. Well, someone gets saved, and guess what happens? They struggle, and they struggle, and they struggle, and struggle, and struggle. So what conclusions can they uh, come from based on the way Christianity was sold to them? Either Christianity is not true, doesn't work, or they're not saved. And then they become disillusioned, discouraged, and then they, 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 they defect. They're, they're done. And it's the church's fault. So what do we have to do? We preach sin, right? And Jesus is the solution to the sin, not a solution to making them better, but a solution to declaring them righteous, even though they are not better. Does everybody understand that? We've got to make sure we present Jesus as the right solution to the right problem. Wouldn't it be wonderful that all of your... I mean, depending on when you get saved, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful that you can go from... And because this is the way it was presented to me as a teenager, basically. Wouldn't it be great that here's what I am, and as soon as I get saved, I'm completely different and all that old stuff goes away. I try to convince myself that was true, but over and over and over, what was still present? Sin, 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 sin. Now, is it true that, that there's some changes that may occur? Yes, but typically what happens? We change some sins for what? We just replace some sins with a different kind of sin. That's all we do. We may not be committing that horrible kind of sin, but we're still committing a different kind of sin. Were the Pharisees sinning? Absolutely. Were they sinning like the tax collectors and publicans? Not the same way, but they were still sinning. The men who came to have the woman who committed adultery killed, were they sinning? Yes. Had they committed her sin? No. Yeah, they had all kinds of issues going. I mean, Jesus completely condemned And the thing is, is sometimes we think, well, see, I'm not like that anymore. But what are you still? You're just a sinner in a different way. And it's like sometimes we forget that. And uh, I know that's controversial, but you, 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 you can believe in all the dramatic change that you want. But so much when you hear all of the supposed dramatic change, it, 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 it almost always ends up demonstrating what? That you're still a sinner. All right. So I, I want to make sure we get that correct. All right. What was the second uh, perversion of the sequence? Sanctification before justification. How does the church do this? We talked a long time about this one. Yeah, basically we try to impose a obedience upon an unregenerate heart. And we do this trying to impose it upon the lost world, all kinds of different ways. And we can't, we can't do that. And we looked at all the scriptures about that, correct? What was the last scripture we looked at? Do what? Uh, we, uh, okay, well, before that, because I, I, some of those I added that weren't in the book. Romans 12 was my adding. First, okay. For, okay. Five. All right, there we go. All right. So we got all of, all of that. Okay, let me just finish this last statement. And I think 1 Corinthians one thirty was the one that we thought was one of the most important, right? Yes, okay. I'm not going to go back and repeat all of that. I'll just end this statement. Yeah, sometimes I'm giving you scriptures not in the book. So, yeah. all right, here we go. 
uh, he says this, to confound justification and sanctification as one of the most horrid errors. Only by a strict separation of justification and sanctification is a sinner made to understand clearly and become certain that he has been received into grace by God. And this knowledge equips him with strength to walk in a new life. So they, they believed to, to confound these is one of the most horrific errors you can make. We cannot do that. All right? We cannot do that. So what's the basis of sanctification? Okay, right. But what, when I say what is the basis, what do I mean by that? How does justification impact sanctification? Well, let's make sure we have this down. We've got to be very careful how we answer this or we're going to end up Roman Catholic. Okay. okay. How, what's, the, what's the connection between justification and sanctification? Well, we've got to be very careful how we say that. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's, very, that's very close, all right? I'm just going to start a Catholic Mass here in a second. Okay. Okay. Okay, all right. There are three aspects of sanctification. Okay, so what, but what is the connection between justification and sanctification? Okay. Got to be careful. Oh, okay, that's good. Now, that, that's still logically correct. All right, justification is the promise of a completed and future sanctification, right? Because those he justifies, he will glorify. Glorification is the ultimate completion of sanctification. So that's 100% theologically correct to say. That well, I'm, I'm saying we got to be, because if you're not careful, you're making it sound like justification is uh, giving you some kind of power in order to be sanctified. And that, that can get dangerous, because now that's turning justification into what? That will turn justification into an infusion. Justification is not an infusion, right? What is justification? It's a legal declaration that a person is just, even though they are not just. And how can a person unjust be declared just? Because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to their account. So the question is, how does a legal declaration, how does a legal declaration based off an imputed righteousness, how is that connected to sanctification, where we typically define sanctification as what? A process in which we become more what? Righteous or Christ-like. Well, immediately you see there's a problem here, right? If I connect justification with it, then I'm turning justification into something that makes me righteous practically. If it say that it makes me righteous practically, how does, how does an imputed righteousness make me righteous practically? You would have to turn it into what kind of a righteousness? Infused. So how, what is the connection? 
I got to make sure everybody understands this because I feel like maybe now we've run into some kind of problem here. Yeah, if we connect it, we're going to end. We got to. I think there can be a connection, but we got to figure out exactly how to verbalize this. This is big, okay? Sometimes, sometimes when I can, I when we get so far down the road in some of this, I sometimes am under the conclusion everybody already knew this, so I'm a little worried now. So we got to make sure we have this down, because we cannot go any further in this book until we have this like a hundred percent down. All right. So let's make sure we define this again. What is justification? A legal declaration in which an unjust person is declared to be just, not on the basis of anything they can do, will do, should do, may do, will never do, but on the basis of what? An imputed righteousness of Christ. Imputed righteousness of Christ declares a person who is not righteous, righteous. All right, all of that, and so what can, we, what can we say in regards to justification? It is outside of us, has nothing to do, it's not inside of us in any way, shape, or form, right? It's external to us, okay? So now, if that is true, what is its connection to sanctification, which we define as what? We define it as a process of becoming more and more separated, right? More and more like Christ, becoming more and more righteous. So what is the connection between justification and sanctification? All right, well, we, we, we could possibly say there's no connection. Is there any connection? I gave you a connection last week. It was in the scripture that Sarah said that I quoted that it's not in the book. Ah, there we go. Justification gives me what? A motivation, right? Go, everybody go to Romans 12.1. Everybody remember this? Everybody remember this? Okay, how does, it, how does Romans 12.1 begin? I beseech you, therefore. The therefore comes from everything that came before, right? What has 11 chapters of Romans been about? Justification, right? Over and over and over. How are we just before God? By faith. Apart from what? Works. Isn't that been a major emphasis? So he goes, I therefore beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, right? Is that how it reads? All right. Now, when, when you see someone trying to present themselves as a living sacrifice, do you connect that with justification or sanctification? Sanctification. What is the motivation to present yourself as a living sacrifice? The mercies of God. The mercies of God is a reference to what? Justification. What is the connection between justification and sanctification? Justification presents the motivation for sanctification. Why do I seek to be sanctified? Because of God's mercy and what? Justification. Right? In justification, I'm declared to be righteous. I am not, I'm not righteous. Yes? 
Now, here becomes the, so everybody understand, it presents a motivation. That's the connection, right? Look, I, I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner, but I've been declared to be righteous. Why have I been declared to be righteous? Because of God's mercy, because of God's grace. Well, that should motivate me then to try to live out and practice what is true positionally, even though I know I can't do it, will never do it, even where close to the way I'm supposed to. It it's provides some form of a motivation. Is the motivation going to be a guarantee? No, it's just the, it's just the reality. There should be a motivation there. Does everybody see that? All right, so do we see a connection now? All right, now, here comes the question. Those, now, we had, we, got to, we had to listen carefully how we're going to, to struggle with this one. Those God justifies, does it guarantee sanctification? Okay, well, that's a good question, all right? Well, in one way, it guarantees it. Because it guarantees what? Justification guarantees what? Glorification. Right? Romans, Romans 8 makes that clear, right? Everybody remember that whole chain? Right? Those he calls, it justifies. It justifies, he glorifies. Isn't it weird that sanctification is left out of that chain? It's not mentioned? Isn't that weird? Everybody go back. Everybody know what I'm referring to, right? Everybody, remember we've covered this in great detail? Okay, Romans 8. I got to come back here and grab my Bible. All my Bibles are in my bag up here, back here. All right, let me come back here and get it. Okay, you're in Romans 8. What verse? 28. Okay, how does it read? Glorifies. Glorifies. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't mention sanctification, does it? Now you could argue he predestined them to be conformed, right? So you could argue that 29 has your sanctification. All right? You could, right? But, he pre, but there he predestines to be conformed, right? That's a completed act, of, uh, a guaranteed act, Yes? Well, we know that's never going to happen on earth, right? No one is ever going to be conformed to the image of Christ perfectly. What would, what would be required for you to be conformed to the image of Christ on earth? An eradication of the old nature. What else? Perfect. So, in one, so in one way, we are conformed. We are conformed to the image of Christ in what way? Positionally and justification, Right? Okay, but this this being conformed to his image uh, happens where? And glorification. All right, so justification is a guarantee of completed sanctification. Has everybody got that? We can agree. So is, does justification lead to sanctification? Yes, if we understand it in this way. Completed sanctification and glorification. Now, in justification, do we have any say-so in justification? No, it's monergistic. Do we have any say-so in glorification? So in one way, sanctification is what? Monergistic. Dun, 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 dun. Right? 
Because it's guaranteed. It's going to happen. Whatever I am now, I will not be when I am glorified. Because my sinful nature will be completely eradicated. I'll have a new body. No more pain. No more sin. No more death. No more anything. So in one sense, it is monergistic. Yes? All right, now, so we have no problem with, okay, so what, so think about it this way. All right, everybody ready? So let's go through this a couple of ways. First of all, justification and sanctification. What is the connection? The first connection is, is that justification is the motivation for sanctification in life. It's the motivation for. Second connection between justification and sanctification. Justification is the guarantee of the completed sanctification and glorification. So far, so good? All right? Because if someone says, oh, you believe you can be justified and not sanctified, how do you teach that nonsense? Uh, No, I believe that I will be sanctified perfectly. No, no, no. I'm talking about now. All right, well, that's what we have to deal with. All right, so, so, so everybody got that down? So what is the connection between justification and sanctification? Number one, so, uh, justification provides the motivation for sanctification in life. All right? And what's that motivation? God's mercy. Secondly, what is the connection between justification and sanctification? It is the guarantee of completed sanctification and glorification. So far, so good. Nothing controversial about any. There shouldn't be anything controversial about this. Okay, nobody thinks these things through, but this is pretty important stuff. Right now, what's the what's then? Where is the debate? Where is the debate then? I don't think anyone would argue that justification provides a motivation for sanctification. I don't think anyone should be able to argue that. It's right there in Romans 12, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So it's right there. I don't think anyone would argue that justification, other than those who teach you can lose your salvation, but everyone else, if, you, if justification is the guaranteed the guaranteed completion of sanctification and glorification, I don't think there could be a debate about that. So then where lies the debate within the evangelical world? Well, the debate is the relationship between justification and sanctification, not in practical, everyday terms. No, in every, everyday terms, right? Okay, okay. So does everybody understand? So the, the, the debate is the... the Connection between justification and sanctification in everyday life. Not, not positionally, but in everyday practical terms. Well, it can get to that. But here's the, here's the big, so here's the big debate. The average church will preach something like this. If you are justified... You will be sanctified, and if you're not sanctified, you are not justified. Now, if they make that accusation against me, on one hand, I would say, well, 
I will be sanctified, right? And glorification. But they're not referring to that, are they? No, 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 no. They are teaching that justification leads to sanctification and life, and without an adequate amount of sanctification in life, you were never justified. Therefore, they connect the two. Link them together. Now, if you remember, years ago, I preached an entire message on, wait a minute, should we separate or link these two concepts together? I don't think anyone knew what I was trying to do at the time, but I was laying the groundwork. Because what did I contrast? The Catholic teaching with the supposed Protestant teaching. And the Catholic system, do they separate justification and sanctification? No, they merge it together. And I argued that the Protestant church was lying to itself when we say justification and sanctification are separate. Because we don't really believe it's separate. And does everyone remember what I said? Probably not. It's been years, okay? I made the argument that it's foolish for us to come around and say justification and sanctification are separate when we turn around and say that separate, if you don't have enough sanctification, you were never justified because at that moment we just did what? We just put them together. So, do we separate them or do we keep them together? If we separate them, what is the, what is the, what is the positives and the negatives of separating them? And what is the positive and negatives of connecting them together? I'm going to let you guys answer this. Because I guarantee you, if anyone stopped you on a street corner and said, hey, do you claim to be a Christian? And you said yes, I'm like, I'm going to ask you some questions about theology. And they asked you some basic questions about justification and sanctification, I guarantee you, all of you would say justification and sanctification are separate. Would, they, would you not? Okay, you would. Now, you may turn around five seconds later and completely contradict yourself by saying something utterly foolish, which is what the evangelical church has been doing for a very long time, and I've grown tired of it, so I've decided to call this garbage out. And people get mad, but they, I don't, I mean, like, either they're separate or they're not separate. So what is the positives of them being separate? Why do we separate them? I think I see where you're going, but just ask yourself. Obviously, this is a big issue between us and Catholicism, Right? We make a big difference that justification and sanctification are different. Why would we separate them? Why would we try to argue so much that they're different? What would be our motivation to do that? In your mind, if you told someone they're different, why would you be telling them they're different? What would be your justification for, like, I've got to make sure they know this is different. You're having an argument with a Catholic. Why would you be so adamant that they're different? Ah, there we go. Because you would be trying to make an argument that works don't save you. That I'm not justified by my works. So you want to separate it to argue that we're not justified by our works. Yes? 
Okay, that sounds so good, doesn't it? But then we turn right around and clearly demonstrate that we do the same thing that Catholics do because we say, the works don't save me. But what do we say all over the evangelical world? The works prove it. So if I don't have the works, I'm not justified. So therefore, justification and sanctification are not separate. They're forever linked. Because without the one, I don't have the other. Meaning, according to that view, then justification doesn't merely declare me righteous. If I say works prove it, then what did I just claim? Justification doesn't declare me righteous. Justification does what? Oh, makes me righteous. Dun, dun, dun. And I've just become a Roman Catholic. Now, the thing about this is I don't know why people get so upset and so mad. This is just thinking it through logically, right? This is, like, I, I don't understand the controversy and, and the anger and the frustration. Like, look, ladies and gentlemen, this is just a matter of church history, right? We've had the Roman Catholic system basically say these two, that salvation is a process, the whole thing. Ju- that justification is a process, and it's linked together with justification forever, or justification and sanctification are linked together. And then someone came along and said, no, 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 we have to separate these. And Sarah said it perfectly. Why did we separate them? Because we wanted to make an argument that works is not the basis of my salvation. So we said amen to that. And then someone said, wait, 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 we have a problem. And why did everyone freak out at that moment? No, well, not at that moment. But later on, people started to freak out. Well, what became the concern? Do I? Well, the, the, the concern was, if I tell Stephen that he's justified by faith alone because of an imputed righteousness, right? And that it has nothing to do with his works, what, then what becomes my concern? Is that Stephen will do what? That he's going to live like a sinner. Right? Well, that's a constant argument in, in the book of Romans. It's a constant argument in the book of Romans. So they were like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. We can't have that now, can we? Now, we can't have Stephen running around living like a sinner, even though you're going to live like a sinner no matter what, which is, this is the whole game everyone plays, because now I've got to define what it means to live as a sinner. So I've got to make it something possible that you can do, right? Even though we know you're still living as a sinner. So the whole thing is a game. But immediately we're like, we've got to do something. We've got to do something, right? So what can I do? I know what I can do. Even though I'm going to claim justification and sanctification are separate, I'm going to look at Stephen and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You are not justified unless you do a, B, C, D, E, because that proves your justification. Now, the minute, I, that sounds so good, right? But it's a, a game of semantics. I'll say, Stephen, I'm not saying these works save you. But I'm saying if you don't have these works, you're not saved. Which means <laughs> the work saves you. Like, I don't know how you can get around that. Like, we're playing little games. But the minute I say that, then I've turned justification not into an imputed righteousness, but you said it. I've now made justification as the means of making you righteous, meaning justification and sanctification are now 
forever linked, and justification is the means to sanctification, meaning it's not imputed, it's infused. And you've destroyed everything. You've literally destroyed the entire Protestant Reformation. And as soon as you say that, everyone loses their mind. And here's what blows my mind. You know what they're more concerned about? They're not more concerned about preserving justification by an imputed righteousness. They're more concerned with their ability to say who who is and isn't saved. And I don't know why they think they deserve to have that ability. Who are you to walk around saying who is saved, not saved, by some arbitrary test published by John MacArthur? When did he become the one who declares who's saved or not saved? But they want to have that ability to say, no, yo, back off. Stop telling me who's saved and not saved. You're not God. Nobody likes that, but that's the case. So you see, so the po- so what's the positive of separating them? Okay, the the positive of separating them is we're maintaining justification by an imputed righteousness as a legal declaration, not an infused righteousness. That's a positive, yes? All right. Is there a negative? What's the negative of separating them? Don't worry about the world. Okay, from the, I'm going to say from the church. <laughs> well, the, ne- the, ne- the negative... Okay, well, uh, well, true. I think the negative is, well, wait a minute then. How do I ensure that someone who's been declared just by an imputed righteousness lives according to what I think they should do in order to be called a Christian? It destroys that, Right? Listen, if we separate this, that, that takes away that. If I separate them, then wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got to have some way to be able to challenge people's lives. I've got to have some way to say you're not saved. Isn't it amazing how, how much time Christians are worried about their ability to say who, who is and isn't saved? Isn't, that, isn't it kind of weird that we're so worried about that? Like, what, 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 what kind of psych, psychological issue is going on in your head that you feel that need? All right? Now, so, so what's the positive of keep, what's the positive of separating them? You can maintain justification by an imputed righteousness, right? And that legal declaration. What's the positive, what's the, uh, uh, what's the negative of separating them? That it destroys really your ability to to demand certain action based off justification. You really don't have much to stand on there, right? Okay. Now, what's the positive? Well, it's a true. It's a. It's it, it does present problems, right? It's negative in this sense. It's negative in the sense that you're like, well, wait a minute here. The Bible seems to say that a Christian should live this way and a Christian should live this way and a Christian should live this way. So what, how do I get them to live that way 
if I separate justification and sanctification, then I can't hold their justification over their head as possible that you're not proved you're saved. It does. It's negative in a sense that it just leads to lots of issues about people's life, lives and what they can and can't do. So I'm not saying it's a, maybe it's a true negative, but I can see, I can see the concern. Does that make sense? Well, true. I mean, I think, I think most of keeping it separate, I think, is more positive. I'm just trying to be fair as I can be. I'm just trying to be fair and say, I can at least see the struggle. I can see the struggle. You know, I can be like, well, wait a minute. Wait. The Bible does seem to present quote-unquote test, so what do I do with that? Like, I understand the struggle, but the, 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 the ultimate ends of it, you'll end up destroying justification is what you'll do. So I, I think... I see nothing but good coming from it, but I can understand. I'll just try to be honest and say I can at least see the struggle. So I'm just going to say that that's a possible negative. All right. Now, what's the positive that can come from merging these two together? Well, I think we know what people are going to say, right? Okay. Well, I don't. Well, we're one church again. Not really. We'll still find something to disagree with. Okay. It doesn't matter. Okay. Look, there's always, I mean, you know, there's, you open the Bible, someone's going to disagree with something. I mean, that's the never ending. So sick of it. Okay. But at least in theory, the positive is now I can say that justification does what? Produces sanctification in everyone's life. Now I can say the one leads to the other. Yeah, if I, put, if I merge the two concepts together, I now can say, if you're justified, you will be sanctified practically, and if you're not sanctified practically, then you're not justified. So if i linking them together, I now have a, a clear way of presenting this. Does that make sense? Now, I think that's a negative. And so I want to make sure, because uh, I, I want to make sure you understand, I'm saying it as a positive in the sense that you fix some problems. I, I completely think it's wrong, but I can see why you would want to do it. All right? And what would be the negative of linking them together? You did, thank you. You destroy the entire doctrine of justification by an imputed righteousness. There's just no way you can maintain that. I mean, you're pretending to maintain that. You destroy this. You like, like it all blows up. So, this is not quite the direction I was going to go, but when you, you kind of see, when you hear kind of a pause, then I've got to jump on it and make sure we work this through. So let's go through this. Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Justification. So we almost need a chart. I need, I need someone to make a chart for the wall, okay? All right, I just keep going to the wall, touching the wall like there's a chart here, okay? But just pretend that there's a chart here, right? Here's justification, right? Here's justification, I'm sorry, here's justification, here's sanctification, right? Now, what is the connection between justification and sanctification? Go. First connection. Justification provides the motivation for sanctification in this life. And what motivation does it provide? It's because of that justification. And just remember, 
why, why, why would we connect it with the mercies of God? Because it's all mercy, right? God justifies me who is not just, who is not righteous, who is not godly, and he judges me not on the basis of what I have done, will do, or can do, or should do. He justifies me on the basis purely of his mercy and grace. He, it's a legal declaration. He gives me imputed righteousness. That should, that should provide some basis of, I am so grateful for that, that I'm going to seek now to live for you in a practical way. It's going to be imperfect, but there's at least some motivation. Correct? All right. We got that. What's the second connection between justification and sanctification? Justification guarantees sanctification. If someone says that, on one hand, I can agree. Right? Now, I can agree knowing that they don't mean what I mean. Okay? I I know. So, sometimes you have to do this with Christians. Look, I'll just agree with you. Whatever. Okay? Even though I know you don't have any clue what I'm talking about, but I'll just agree. All right? I hate when that happens, but sometimes I had to do that. Right? Like, uh, I, for, to get back into the Bible Institute in Nebraska after I got kicked out of, I had to agree that God elects according to foreknowledge. Whoa. Okay. Now, what they meant was God elects based off foreseen faith, but foreknowledge just seems God elects based off knowing beforehand, and I'm like, whatever, I just agree with them. And it's like, it was so sad the one supposedly doing the teaching did not understand that simply saying election based off foreknowledge does not destroy election. It just means that God's electing based off what he knows beforehand. He knew me beforehand. He was not electing me on the basis of what I would do because that would be me electing God and then God reacting to my elect. Oh, it's so stupid. Okay. And it's like, how, how can the one teaching the Bible not figure that out? But okay. But I just agreed with it because it got me back into the Bible Institute. But it was just ridiculous because I'm like, you're, whatever. Okay. I'll agree with what your complete misunderstanding of a basic word. Okay. But that's, that's, that's all right. Okay, so, so when someone says, no, 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 justification guarantees sanctification, you're like, absolutely it does, 1,000%. I will be conformed to the image of Christ. And they'll be like, amen, man, you're, you're preaching it good. I'm like, okay, whatever, okay. But what, what do we mean by that? Positionally, I am, and in glorification, I will be. So, like, right now, I am completely sanctified on the basis of my justification because of imputed righteousness. I am sanctified. I am more sanctified. And so that's why I'm like, give me the MacArthur test. I pass it. In Christ, right? So, but, so when they say, so, so you're saying that you won't have works if you're, oh, no, I have all the works. I have all the works in my justification. But they want it, they don't even, see, you know what happens. Immediately the conversation comes, they've thrown out the imputed righteousness. And now all becomes about practical righteousness, practical, and it's like you don't even care about imputed. And then they get offended when you say that. I'm like, look, all you want to do is argue with me about how many works requires for me to be saved. You're no better than a Roman Catholic. At least a Catholic gives me a system and what to do. You don't even do that. It's just nonsense. Okay, so, so the, the, the connection, justification motivates or gives the motivation, at least presents the motivation for sanctification. Justification guarantees sanctification in what ways? Number one, in the now positionally, in the future, and glorification. 
Boom. All right? Now, here's the question, and that we've kind of already answered. Does justification produce sanctification practically? Sarah's not afraid to say it, okay? Everyone listening online, it was not me, okay? okay, okay. It's a motivation. It does not guarantee and it does not produce it practically. And why, and, to say, and why do we have to say that? If we say anything different, then we turn justification not into an imputed righteousness, but into an infused righteousness. Now, people hate to hear that. But either my justification just declares me to be righteous or it makes me righteous. And if it makes me righteous, it's not imputed, it's infused. Now, it does make me righteous positionally. And it guarantees I will be righteous eternally. What does it not guarantee? That I'm going to be now. And if you say that it does guarantee that, well, then you have to redefine what righteous is. Right? But you say, no, it will produce sanctification. It will? Does it do it perfectly? No. Well, so then how do you measure it? Because I'm going to always be sinning, right? If I'm guilty of one point of the law. So I'm always guilty of all of it. So I don't even know how it works. And if you say justification produces sanctification, you would have to at least acknowledge this. It's not perfect. (laughs) Right? There's no way to measure it because I'm looking at one action and doing what? Ignoring all the other actions. If Stephen improves dramatically in one area, I could go, man, look at the sanctification in Stephen's life. But what am I having to ignore? All the other stuff. Because all the other stuff could call into question that it's just a circle of madness. Right, yeah, well, yeah, we're measuring it according to our own idea of what it is. Because how would God measure it? Completely differently. I'm sitting here in church this morning, right? Christmas Day. Outwardly, that could be viewed as what? Godly, look how sanctified he is. But I could be here with completely, I've talked about it before. Sometimes we can show up on Christmas Day, pat ourselves on the back that we've done something, but we're here for the completely wrong reason, right? We're here to make a point. I've talked about this so many times on Christmas Day. We can't be here to make a point. If we're here to make a point, then what does it mean? That we're wasting our time. Yes? So in other words, I could view someone not here today, and go, where in the world are they? It's Christmas. You know, it's the Jesus is the reason for the season. Look around, right? I can, I can say, what, what's their problem? And I can sit here and look like that I'm the good one. But the reality is, if I'm here for the wrong reason, I'm no better than the one not here. So then that means, how did we ever judge anything on the basis of our, our test and our ideas? What does Isaiah say about our good works? They're filthy rags. Now, they're filthy rags in a couple of ways. Number one, they can never satisfy God's demand. And number two, they're filthy rags because they're always corrupted by what? Sinful motivations, sinful ideas, sinful desires. 
That's why when they said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these wonderful things? He said, depart from me, I never knew you. Because just external action doesn't prove anything. The Pharisees had the external actions down time and time again. And time and time again, what did Jesus say? You've cleaned up the outside of the cup. You've cleaned the outside of the tomb. But inside, you're filled with what? Either filth or dead man's bones. You worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I mean, over and over and over we see this in the Bible. So, do you have this down? This may be one of... uh, This may be the most important lesson we've done now. I I know I've said that before, but this may be the most important lesson that we've done. Now, the sad part is, is we're going to get in further into the study and then this is going to come back up and people are going to be like, wait, what happened? When did we change our view? What's going on? And I... (laughs) I can't do anything about it. But everyone needs to know this. All I can do is continue to beg everyone to listen to everything that we're doing because it's so important that we understand this. Now, let me make it very clear. If you told anyone else outside this church what we just talked about, they would say it's heretical. But it's just trying to be consistent with the division that happened at the Protestant Reformation. That's all we're attempting to do. All we're attempting to do. There's nothing we're saying that is radical. There's nothing that we're saying that is, it's just like, if I say, if I say this, maybe, maybe, does this work in math? Maybe the math people can tell me that in, in math, if I say this is true, then this has to be the result of it, right? Okay, is that, is that a, a right way to state a mathematical formula? Right? If X is this, then this has to be there. Or if this is this, then X has to be this. Something along those lines. I, I, obviously, I don't know how to use the correct illustration. But you get the idea. Well, in theology, it's the same way. If A is true, then it has to lead to B. Right? There's a logical progression. And some people in theology never follow the logical progression. They make one statement and then contradict the statement five seconds later. Like when Christians say, no, because you're a Christian, you now have supernatural ability to say yes to God, no to sin. Well, wait a minute. Then I should be able to be perfect. Well, no, you can't be perfect. Well, then I obviously have limited power. Or when Christians say, you're not only saved from the power or from the penalty of sin, you're saved from the power of sin. Well, if I'm saved from the power of sin, I should be perfect. Because I can't be perfect, that means I'm still under the power of Sin. And whenever you point this out, people's minds melt, but it's not my problem. If I say that I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, justified by an imputed righteousness, what is immediately my declaring? I'm being made declared righteous even though I am not righteous. And that has serious implications on what? Sanctification. And if I change it in sanctification then I have to reverse the order and I have to change what? What we teach about justification. And it's amazing that you can spend all of these hours trying to fix that and be accused of not preaching the gospel when all I'm trying to do is preserve the gospel. Because if we mess mess up the order of sanctification and justification, what gets destroyed? The gospel. And we have a law-based system. And that's what the evangelical world has turned into. It's not an antinomian invasion that everyone keeps claiming. 
Everyone keeps saying antinomianism. They can't get. They can't show me anything. Give me a sermon. That's my, show me what book did you read by an antinomian? They don't. They don't have any information, but they accuse everyone of being an antinomian, and I'm so sick of that accusation. I'm the. the I'm the. I'm a million miles away from an antinomian. Anybody who's ever heard my preaching, right? I'm not like, hey, just do whatever you want. I, has anybody ever heard me ever say anything like that? That's just. Ridiculous. All right. Okay, I hope that that took a completely different direction, but it obviously was a needful one. So if you have any questions, ask afterwards. All right, Lord God, we come before you today. We are grateful that we have a moment of time to just understand our justification is purely because of you, because of grace, and because of an imputed righteousness, and that we do not destroy that simply because we want to try to make sure that we can either tell people they're saved or not saved or come up with some legal system which we can make ourselves feel better. The reality is we're always a sinner and our only hope is what your son did for us and living for us and dying for us. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said, amen.